heard once that like your business is your opportunity to create a world that you'd want to live in. And that's kind of what, you know, we try to do. That's the voice of Justin Alvarez, co-owner of Maker Watch Company. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper Tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now, on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Justin Alvarez. He, along with Nibbin Thomas, own the Mississauga, Ontario, Canada-based business, Maker Watch Company. If there is one thing hosting this show has taught me, it is that there are infinite ways you can run your business. So, although this is a show about building a furniture brand, at times I like to highlight other types of businesses whose core principles like design, manufacturing, selling, and core materials like wood, metal, epoxy, concrete overlap the furniture industry. The story of Maker Watch Company is just that taking the same ideas we use in the furniture business and applying it to a very similar design build type company. Follow along as we talk about custom clients, brand identity, teamwork, and much more. So let's get into it and hear Justin's story in his own words. I've always been kind of searching for like, what do I want to do? What do I want to be? Like what all this kind of questions have plagued me since I was probably 18 all the way into you know until when we started around 27 I guess I was um so it was like 10 years where I was just smashing books reading stuff and trying to figure out what I could do what I could start what I wanted to do what I liked um and I always kind of go back to this thing of what did I used to like doing before things mattered and so I always used to like making stuff my grandpa was always making stuff around me. And that's the household I grew up in with my mom and my grandfather. And, you know, he would make me when I was little, he made me a basketball net and I didn't know what, what he was making. I just see like, you know, he's carving this thing out of um, MDF and I'm like, what are you doing? And then finally I saw him like painting it, which I still didn't know what it was. And then I saw him attaching to the, uh, the rim to it. And I was like, oh, it's a basketball net. So put the basketball net up, had fun with that. And then I got into skateboarding at at one point in time. And uh, he built like a little half pipe in the garage. And yeah, so I've always been around tools. I probably shouldn't have been touching tools as early as I I was. I've done a lot of stupid things um, with tools and with electrical equipment and stuff like this. But um, that's just kind of a little curious, you know? 
in 2016 started dabbling with this sketch and I thought you know I did a little bit of wood shop in high school I think I could figure out how to make this and so I bought a lathe like an old beaver I think it was super heavy cast iron um, similar to what we had used in wood shop and I bought a drill press um, I think it was a Sears Craftsman drill press or something again super heavy probably from the 1980s and yeah, I got to work in, I guess, September of 2016. And it took me around six months to build the very first watch, which we still have like on display in our little showroom there at the front. And how we basically started was me and Nibin have been friends since uh, my grandpa used to drive us to T-Ball when we were five years old. So, you know, just before, I guess, kindergarten, even we were friends um, and we would always meet up quarterly with another friend of ours and basically talk about well hey what are you working on it's like oh i'm working and then i'm working on i built this and i showed them the watch uh like a picture of it and then i think we met up again closer to new year's this was christmas and we met up closer to new year's and nibin saw the watch and he posted it on his instagram and his old high school teacher was like can i get one and that's basically how we started that was our first client that was the second watch we ever made. I made the third watch we ever made for Nibin. And then basically Nibin worked out through his friends network to kind of get us a bunch more sales. And, and that's sort of how we how we started. Very like organic and sort of unexpected. Like I didn't really make a watch to sell it. I had just made a watch because I thought it was cool. And I that's what I wanted. I wanted a wood watch with an automatic movement. And that was that was it. It's a great story. And I love when I hear people talk about taking their passions and, and what they actually enjoy doing and thinking, yeah. how can I turn that into a job? How can I turn that into a profession that's going to make me not only happy, but also make me money, also be able to be a sustainable career for myself. So it's great to hear that story and how it's culminating into what you are doing today. For sure. Your story is obviously about creating things and designing things and building a business, but it's also about a partnership, a collaboration. You two were friends for pretty much your entire life. But there's a big difference between close friends and business partners. How did you decide that you wanted to work together beyond the he put it out on social media and somebody said, yes, we want to build it. And that could have been a, a knee jerk reaction that, OK, now we're building this watch because it's something you wanted to do. And you could make money from it. But as it became a business, you had to differentiate between your friendship and your business partnership. So talk a little bit about how you made it so you could stay friends and also business partners and do both successfully. Sure. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of how we started, including the business aspect of it, was Nibin was the catalyst too. like he was like, yo, I'd like to help you out with this if if that's cool. And like full transparency, like again, friend first, business partner second, I was always from the beginning, like, you know, whatever percentage you think it should be, like you just let me know. And that's that's what we'll work with from like a an ownership perspective. So Ibn started helping me out. He was already like to me, he was already 
the reason why I had the opportunity to even make a second watch in the first place. So I was more than happy when he said he would like to help out, especially on the sales and the back end, because I glaze over when I look at that kind of stuff. Even the sales, like I would much rather be, you know, if Steve Jobs was the sales guy in, uh, in Apple and the, the marketer, like I think that would kind of be Nibbin and I would be like more like a Steve Wozniak who was just kind of in the, in the thick of things, just working on the product and ultimately just getting to use my hands as much as, as much as I can. Cause again, that just, that's my passion is just being able to, to create. I would say Nibbin, Nibbin was definitely the, the catalyst to that. And then, you know, as far as when things get tough and that kind of thing, like how do we remain friends? And, you know, I don't think our friendship would would ever change as far as business decisions go. A lot of the time you just, for me, at least, whether I think something is right and wrong is ultimately just my perspective on a thing. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's right or wrong. So it's like always trying to remember that. And if something just makes sense, like, from a neutral perspective or as neutral as I can possibly be knowing that my perspective isn't necessarily right. Something just makes sense. Then it just makes sense, you know, and there's a number of things that just make sense where I might not be in agreement with, or maybe I'm taking my own perspective to, and it's just like letting go sometimes of your perspective on a thing to be okay with, you know, the other person's decision in order to get, a decision made and an action taken. There's a big difference between a hobby, something that you like to do and that you enjoy, and a business, something that is what you're making money at, your business. What was that turning point for you when it stopped being a hobby and became an actual business? Was that a certain amount of clients? Was that a certain amount of sales? Was that filling out paperwork to make the business official? Where where was that line for you? And how did you get to it? And what did it look like on the other side? I think it was definitely just, you know, signing the paperwork to make things official in my mind. Um, you know, if you want to talk about hobby versus business, I think we're still very much in that transition and we have a lot of work to do. So I've been like, doing this since we started 2017, May of 2017. Um, I quit construction at that point in time and, you know, was just focused on, on this. Um, I'm, I still live at home. So my expenses are super low and yeah, it's, it's still very much in the process of growth. And if you were to ask either of us, we would both say we still have a long way to go. But to me that that point was, was when we signed the papers, then it was, um, you know, then it was, it was a thing. It's still in the process, but everyone's company is still in the process of growth. And that's talking about it from your perspective, mm -hmm. look, looking out, but people looking in at your business, I think would say you are already there. You have an amazing amount of clientele some regular people, some pretty famous. You ship all over the world. You've been making watches since 2017. You're expanding your your business. You're expanding your offerings. You expanded your shop. You've added a showroom and a warehouse. I think that looking at it from an outside perspective, it's a lot more than 
a hobby. It's definitely a successful business. Where did that come from? Was it just Nibbins pushing and pushing and pushing? Was it word of mouth? Did a post or a watch just really get out there and and catch fire and make people stand to attention? Or has it just been a, a slow roll? What What's the process been like since you started in 2017 making a watch for an old high school teacher? I think it's definitely been a slow process, especially for me on the product end. Like, you know, we made watches in the beginning with that were hand carved on the lathe that had no infrastructure and this kind of stuff. And um, there were issues with that. Like I might have to cut stuff multiple times in order to get it right. Cause you know, you got to fit a glass on, you got to fit a movement in, you got to drill a crown hole, which, you know, I, I tried to take the very first watch to a watchmaker and I'm like, can you drill this crowd hole for me? And he's like, no, you need to send this to like an engineering company or something. None of them. I'm like, do you know what he's like? Nah, like it's probably in the States or something like that. And he's like, you're going to have to ship it out. And I was like, I can't send it out and ship it out. Like I'm trying to get this done today. So it's, it's more or less just been a, a process of, of trial and error and making improvements along the way. Like when we first started, we used all kinds of exotic woods, which from a, a product that needs to get shipped around the world perspective, that's not the most durable thing to do because something like a Bacote or um, a Cocobolo, the more exotic oily woods, like they don't take very well to changes in their environment. And so, you know, we'd have enough watches that cracked on us and this kind of stuff. So it's definitely been a lot of trial and error where we eventually learned how to stabilize wood and we got into hybrid um, cases, which our good friend uh, Jeff Mack and also my cousin Mike had had uh, seen a couple things where hybrid like epoxy and uh, wood were being combined together into material. And they're like, you guys should should try that. And so that's sort of how our business evolved with from that initial idea from those two people. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's literally been steady growth for, you know, the first few years. Um, we did have a video that hit, I think it was last February or the February before on TikTok. You know, there was like, I think two and a half million views on that one video. And that sort of showed us the possibility of if we can get our product in front of enough eyes, if we can figure out the correct marketing, which again is still in the process of getting figured out. That's like probably the biggest hurdle right now is, is, is figuring out that consistent traffic. But if we can figure that out, like the possibilities are, are huge. Right. So it, it was literally that sort of was another maybe spark of fire. If you want to say that, let us realize that, you know, we got a good product. It's just, there needs to be more eyes on it. It's unique. It just, we just need the eyes. And when we got those eyes, you know, it, it was a great few months. And then, yeah, as that started to taper off now, it's just very much like a slow growth as it was before that video hit. I'm going to take it to maybe a painful part in your growth. And that's what you were talking about in the beginning of that. And that's the trial and error of watches malfunctioning or breaking or just not coming together properly. And that is a very big problem for any company, whether it's a watch company or a furniture company or or anyone that makes product. Having their product not work is a big problem, especially if it's being shipped out and then returned. How are you dealing with that 
when you were having clients who were buying product from you and then you had to either tell them it's not ready in time or had to take returns from them if it malfunctioned when they had it. How did you deal with that situation? Like you said, like you always want the product to be the best it can be ultimately. And that's always what I want. There was a period of time where Nibin would get send me like a, a WhatsApp photo and I would swipe down just to see like my notifications and I'd see a photo from him and I'd be like, it, it just gives me like a, a feeling in the pit of my stomach. But ultimately, you know, the way we handle that is my intent was to make the best product possible. And if it messed up, my goal is to fix that at our cost. Like it, it very often it was never at the expense of the client unless it was user user damage or or whatever if they drop the watch or or something then yeah they might charge get charged the movement cost and the cost to ship it but generally speaking if if the wood's breaking or if something's not functioning properly that's always a cost we eat at the end of the day we're always trying to build the best product something that's going to last a long time because some of us some people are trusting us with some crazy stuff like in terms of getting to tell people's people's stories and some people are sending us like cremated remains and and you know wanting watches that embody their their loved ones and this kind of stuff so i ultimately want it to be the best product and want it to last as long as possible so if you know we haven't had any issues lately but like if that occurred way back when it would always be something that you know we'd want to we'd want to fix and repair and also our very first i think it was 20 or 30 watches that we had made we told people like listen there's going to be issues with these watches because by no means is this like, is this the end product? We always have this idea of like, even now, like there's very small product improvements that are always in my head. It's sort of like when we get enough money to, to, to do X, we'll make it this much better. It's already a great product, but like, I think it can be better by doing X. And so the very first 20 people that we got a watch to, we let them know, Hey, like, we're going to give you guys a brand new second watch when we get this thing figured out, which is going to have like, um, you know, metal infrastructure. It's going to be all this stuff. Cause we already kind of had the vision for, for what the the improvements were going to be. And we want to watch right now. Like, we'll I'll make you one. This is going to be the cost, but know in that cost, you're going to get a second watch once we're at that point. I was going to get to this, a little bit later in the episode, but I'm sure a lot of people took a hard pause when they heard you say some people send us cremated ashes to make watches out of and, and things like that, because that's not something that that a lot of people deal with. The personalizing in general that you all go through for these for these custom timepieces. People who are building furniture or making any type of product and do customization, they understand that the client has an idea in their head and they have to make that into a reality and they have to explain to the client in minute detail exactly how they're going to do that because it's painful building something, delivering it, and the client saying that's not what I imagined. I can only picture how hard it must be and how much detail you must go into when somebody's sending you something so precious as remains of a loved one. What's your process like to ensure customer satisfaction 
of these custom pieces? So generally speaking, once somebody decides they would like a piece and they want to work with us, we'll do a sketch, very rough sketch. By no means does it look uh, close to the finished product, which I'm proud of because uh, if, if the product end product look like the sketch, there might be a little bit of an issue here. After the sketch, if they okay the sketch, then we get into building the material. Um, a lot of stuff is referenced from our previous builds. I think we've built around just over like 600 watches now. So there's there's a lot of stuff to pull from, a lot of ideas, or people will send us inspiration, whether it be colors or what have you. Like most recently, we did a hybrid that was uh, like a woodland camo kind of vibe. Um, if somebody has an idea, as long as somebody has an idea of what they want, uh, we can execute on it. And then from there, essentially what we do is we we make the material and then I'll send them an update uh, if they're happy with the material, I'll go ahead and cut it. If they are unhappy with the material, I will make more material. Having people involved in the process for us from a customization standpoint, I think at least as much of the process as possible. Obviously, like, you know, once we cut the watch, you know, there's been very, very few, if any, people that once we've cut the material, people aren't happy with it. It's usually, you know, they can they can kind of fish out whether they're happy with the case or not when they see the material. So from there, you know, when it's more high stake stuff like cremated remains and stuff like that, again, those have been mostly like simpler builds from a color perspective. And when they're not, you know, I have to take extra precaution when I'm, when I'm measuring things, when I'm lining things up, because there definitely is like a level of precision to it to make sure it ends up on the face in the right spot um, that's sort of been you know figured out uh, it wasn't figured out at one point in time especially you know we had never operated a cnc before we started this business so once we got a cnc and kind of learning the nuances of the cnc that alone took a year like we were cutting cases we didn't put markers or you know do any engraving or anything on our the, the face of our watch until like a year after we had we had the CNC, and that's literally because I had no idea how how to do that. Um, after that, after it's been cut, like I said, nobody usually has an issue with it. It's happened, I think. I, I honestly can't even recall a time where it's happened where somebody hasn't been happy with with the outcome after it's been cut. So that's usually sort of the the safe safe stage once once the case has been cut. Where does the all important money conversation fit into this because you're doing a lot of work before anything's even approved you're going through a lot of designs you're making material you're doing all that before the watch even gets cut so where does that conversation come in and what does the deposit situation look like so usually the money conversation comes in initially um we'll usually jump on a phone call with somebody if they want to build a custom. And, you know, I think that gives them a little bit of trust in, in what we're doing. Plus I'm sure online presence and all that kind of stuff, but uh, we'll usually jump on a call with them, find out what they, what they want to do. And then from there, it's usually a 50% deposit upfront. Um, we're kind of slowly switching to just more paid in fulls because sometimes the deposits don't come on time and it gets kind of a little bit of a pain to manage when, you know, we record, we're getting in a certain amount of income, but like 50% of that comes, you know, six to eight weeks later, we're kind of moving towards getting the payment in full. But if anybody ever has an issue with paying in full, we still, 
like we'll split it, split it up 50, 50 deposit. And then the second part is paid once the watch is completed and they get uh, a photo if they would like of, of the final, the final piece. And then once they pay the second part of the deposit, then we ship. Talking about having photos of the pieces and sharing what the block of material looks like before it's cut. How do you do that with a client? What's that look like from your end to the client? Is it emails? Is it phone calls? Are you sending out samples? What does that process actually look like when you break it down to the different parts of it? I would say this, like most, when we first talk to them on the custom call, we ask them like how they'd like to communicate back and forth. I would say like maybe five to 10% of the time is email. Um, then maybe 40% is Instagram. And then like 60% will use WhatsApp for the most part. WhatsApp is like our go-to unless people would prefer Instagram or, or uh, email. But email is usually very few people prefer email for the most part. Uh, and then from there, like that's where we send everything. We'll send the photos, we'll send the videos. Um, we might send clips of, of the process once we're done pouring and cutting the material. Obviously 600 plus watches in, this is working for you. That process is working for you. But I do want to ask, is that hard for you to do it over Instagram or text message instead of email? Because with an email, it's easier to have a paper trail. You can go through, you can check, you can reference things. But text message or just a, a free flow chat, it might be a little harder to find exact points of reference from the conversation. Again, obviously, it's working for you. So no knock on that. But how are you dealing with that when there is an issue and you need to go back and figure out where the issue is coming from to me at least like whatsapp is is similar is similar to email even even text can be just because you have the ability to search within the chat or you know um you can look at media very easily just by going to you know shared with or or what what have you um so it's almost it's almost easier and i feel like for us at least it just there's a level of of trust there whatsapp just is just like a tiny bit more more personal and for our product just because it's a little bit pricier like i think the trust component is super important because i think if you don't have that trust like it's it's just it's a hard sell if if there's no trust there if it was like a hundred dollar product or a fifty dollar product this is a different story but you know when the watch costs upwards of thousand twelve hundred canadian i think the trust is super important to be honest like i actually have a hard time using email um i just it's just not been in my, I guess, repertoire for probably until now, like other than, you know, purchasing stuff online, like I've, from a work perspective, I've never really had to use a lot of email. So I'm not the greatest at navigating it. And to me, once there's like 30 threads of email, like I, I I'm like, man, where are all the pictures or where, like, where did I, like, I get really lost in, in email. So WhatsApp is just a little bit more intuitive for me. Standing out in your marketplace is very important when you want to build your business, and that's what you're doing. And you can't always show your sales figures to the general public, but the way you do show that you are improving, that things are moving forward, that people are liking your product is with reviews. 
reviews are a big part of showing people that what you're making is really what you're saying you're making. You can write on your website as much as you want that these are amazing watches, but if you're the only one shouting it from the rooftops, then it's hard for people to believe. What's your approach to to getting reviews? Are you asking for them? Are you pushing that for the final piece? Or is that just organic? And how are you using your reviews besides just your website to gain traction for your company? We do ask, not immediately. Uh, usually after, sometimes we'll just ask people on on Facebook through our story or whatever. If you've like gotten one of our products, we'd be more than happy um, if you could leave us a review. Just at the end of the day, we want it to be as genuine as possible. And we do have a lot of positive reviews, which I'm like, I couldn't be more happy about. Sometimes I read them and like, you know, people put a lot of effort to them and it's the best thing. Like it's the best feeling because hopefully whoever's reading those reviews gets the same feeling. Um, and I think that's just down to like how we treat our clients. The clients are people just like us and they're no different. I heard once that like, you know, your business is your opportunity to create a world that you'd want to live in. And that's kind of what, you know, we try to do. We try to be as communicative as possible, as friendly as possible. And, you know, when when we make mistakes, own own our mistakes. Like I said, when we something's wrong with a product, that's that's on us. Um, I, I don't know how with all those things in place, you can't not foster a positive relationship with people. Um, there has been a couple people that have been very hard to please, but you know we still try our best. At, at the end of the day, we're human, and and we make mistakes too. And like we understand that, you know, we can't be perfect to everybody. But but yeah, we we do try our best, even with even with like when it's difficult. But with the reviews, I think they just help the you know trust again when it comes to purchasing product. Um, I'm sure when people are making decisions, you know, the first thing. I usually do is check the reviews of a business. And if the business has good reviews, then like I feel I feel comfortable making a purchase, right? Um, so for sure it helps with with building trust with future clients. Other than being on our website and you know, I, I don't know if it floats around on on Instagram as well, if you can see that from there, but um I think that's that's the most um useful place for us is is when people when people visit the website and they they see, you know, that there's a lot of positive reviews. It, again, they have that that trust that, you know, we will do the best we can for them. Your website is the place that people are going to buy your watches and it needs to embody the feeling that your watches have, that your company has. It's the doorway to your company and makes people want to buy your product what went into designing your website and how did you get it to the point it is today where you feel it is a good representation of the company you're trying to build uh to be honest that's all nibbin <laughs> um I, I i do like when he updates it i i take a look at it and to be even more transparent up until like last week when we had a sit down with a couple of our good friends helping us with regards to becoming a better business. And we went over our website and there was a lot of changes that we had to 
we're still in the process of making um, in order to to perfect it. So I think you know it's all it's always a work in progress. Um, we we definitely want it to feel as like our Instagram feels or to embody the business as best as it can. But ultimately, it's a work in progress and it, it, it's constantly changing up until up until a couple of weeks ago. It's it's constantly changing. But yeah, we just want it to be as simple as possible and, and as as little information that you don't need as as possible so that it's, it's just simple to navigate. If the website is the the front door of people experiencing your company, after they've bought the watch and they actually get the package delivered, that is the exit for your company. And you brought up Apple before. And so we'll go down that road. And, and there's a great story about Apple and how they went through so many different packaging options for the iPhone to make it perfect for that, that user experience at the end where it's the first physical thing that they experience from the product and how important that is. I know that your story of packaging, maybe it's not as dramatic as that, but it does have a journey to it. Can you talk about your packaging and how it's evolved from the beginning to where it is now and how important that is for you as an actual part of your actual product instead of just packaging that gets thrown away at the end? For sure. So a few years back, I think in 2014, I believe, um, I had the opportunity to travel to India and like a little bit of Asia with my cousin. And, you know, when you're there, it becomes abundantly clear that packaging is is a big, big issue. We're lucky here. You know, we're walking around and for the most part, like it's pretty clean in comparison um, over there clumps and piles of packaging everywhere and like you know you're in a river and there's just plastic packaging and bottles and all this kind of stuff um so you know one of the main things that i always wanted was if i ever decided to make a product or even got to that point of having a product i always wanted it to be in the most like economical packaging possible um so that kind of leads us to like our two options for packaging right now, which um, customs still come in coconuts, which they have since, I don't know, the second watch. The coconut came about just, I was trying to figure out what I could put the watch in that wasn't what I initially had in mind, which I'll get to what I had initially had in mind later. But for whatever reason, a pineapple popped into my head and I was just like, well, I can't use a pineapple because that'll go bad. But then the next thing was uh, was a coconut. And, um, you know, for the longest time, you know, you'd see us at the grocery store when we need to re-up on coconuts and uh, Nibin would take them home and his dad would help him clean them out and cut them in half. And uh, he would bring them back all all nice and clean. And and uh, I would assemble them into uh, our packaging, essentially. Um, and I think the, the cool thing about the coconuts and like a lot of people have become accustomed to the coconuts, I think it's just a relatable thing. And it's kind of a quirky thing that you would never expect a watch to come in. Um, it's relatable in the sense that, you know, it's a coconut. You've definitely seen a coconut before. Um, so there's something that's like quirky and pleasing about it. Um, yeah, so I don't really know if we'll ever drop the coconut or not. It's just kind of become our thing ultimately. Um, but yeah, then our second piece of packaging is what I had initially envisioned our packaging would be, which is just a plantable box. So our packaging right now has um, seeds in it. So if you plant it, 
Um, it will grow wildflowers, which are good for bees, good for the environment. But we also know that you can't really ship seeds um, overseas. So we will be changing the packaging for that in the future. Um, we might dabble in mycelium packaging, see if we can grow the mycelium here. And um, yeah, that'll be kind of a an interesting shift. You're known as a watch company, but as a lot of companies experience, you feel like growth is needed and you're making more products. You're expanding your collection. Let's talk about that a little bit, how you decided to expand and how pushing a new product to market is going for your business. For sure. Um, yeah, we started in watches. Um, things started to slow down a little bit during COVID. So this was Nibin's idea, actually, to start doing clocks, um, which, you know, we now do for other small businesses. And, um, you know, we got one for a coffee shop that's going right now. And so, yeah, that's starting to pick up a little bit. Um, and then outside of the clocks, we just have apparel, really. And that's sort of another part of the business. That's like an easy add on with Shopify. There's a company called Printful that you can spec out your t-shirts and they'll fulfill them and, and ship them for you. Um, so that's been helpful. But yeah, in terms of product expansion, like the cool thing is, I guess, about, you know, owning your own business. We could literally do anything, but there's also limited time to do everything. Um, so it would be nice to make some sculptures or something like that in the future um, or just print the t-shirts in-house, like do some screen printing, like that would all be super fun. But, you know, I always have to be humbled and reminded that I can't do everything. And that's sort of like the bottleneck is I, I think as a business, you need to learn how to accurately delegate tasks if, if you want to grow properly. You have been growing. You've expanded into a new space. Your product line is growing. Your customers are growing. Your grasp on the custom watch world is growing. How are you delegating your time between both of you so you can keep up with the growth that you're experiencing? Um, to be honest, that's actually a very difficult thing still. That's not an easy easy thing at the moment usually nibbin does will do all the social media and the marketing and like sort of back-end website stuff and i will take care of all the manufacturing we've recently hired somebody part-time jacob which frees up my time a little bit um but you know in the future i'll still have to learn how to delegate even more and you know it would be nice at some point to hire a videographer and to hire um somebody to actually maybe make the watches so that you know i can still make watches but also focus on on other aspects of the business as well there are people who are trying to make companies whether a furniture company or a product company like you have they hear you and they say i also want to do something that i love but they don't know the first place to start or they don't know how to take the company that they already have and move it forward. So for people listening, what kind of advice could you share after building your own company for other people who want to also have successful companies of their own? 
Well, I don't know if the second part applies to us. Like, we're still very much trying to move our company forward. Um, but the for the first part, you know, it's just picking it up and and doing it ultimately. Like, you know, I had drawn that sketch two years before, and I didn't take action until two years later. But I also think it's important, like, not to beat yourself up for not taking action right away. Although that is the most in, important thing, you know even before I had the lathe, like I picked up a little piece of foam from the job site and I was carving what the case would watch case would look like from, uh, from foam. And then, you know, I was going to coffee shops and sketching it out. So it just has to be something that like, you know, going back to the beginning of this conversation, I think it's ultimately got to be something that you enjoy um, because, you know, whether it turns into a business or not, if you're trying to start a business, I think it's also got to be something you enjoy just because if you don't enjoy it, it has the propensity to bury you. And what I mean by that is if you're coming to work every day or if you're having to come to work every day and you're not getting to come to work every day. And there's I think there's a definitive distinction between those things. And it, the only difference is there's a mindset shift between getting to and having to. But if you're having to all the time that can be extremely draining if you're getting to and you enjoy the place that you're getting to come to and that the work that you're getting to work on i think that makes for me at least personally going through challenging times in business bearable because i think if that was not in place those challenging times can like again have the opportunity to end what you're working on or make you less passionate about about what you're trying to do I appreciate your humbleness. I appreciate your humbleness about your company and that you're always trying to to strive to be better. But I will say it for you <laughs> that you have an impressive company. You've done impressive work in the past. And I truly do appreciate you sitting down and talking with me. And, and I'm excited to see the impressive work that you do in the future. So thank you for sharing your story. And I wish you nothing but success moving forward. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you again for thanks for the opportunity and uh, thanks for all your support. It means a lot, you know. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com and feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.